Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I am more than ready to preach this morning. I did a half marathon yesterday. It's like last week. No, yesterday. And throughout the whole thing, I'm like preaching it, like in my mind and everything. And I am like meditating on God's word. We're in this series called The Patriarchs. Really, it's the second half of the book of Genesis. It's about the male founders of the Jewish people. I originally kind of broke it into seasons. Season one was Abraham. Season two was Isaac. Season three is Jacob. And now season four is really kind of the spinoffs because we have 12 patriarchs. Um, This is how the uh, book of Acts, um, Stephen, when he is about to be martyred, says in Acts chapter seven, verses eight through nine. And he gave the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham, because the father became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs and the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into slavery, but God was with him. The rest of the book of Genesis really follows this right here, Stephen's summation of the life of the patriarchs. So we have 12 patriarchs, something very unique here, because we remember with Abraham, Abraham's one son was his one legitimate heir, which was Isaac, even though he had Ishmael and other sons. Then Isaac has two sons, but only one is the one who would be the patriarch after him, which is Jacob, which is Jacob. Even though he was younger, there was a prophecy that the older would serve the younger. But now with Jacob, his 12 sons become the patriarchs moving forward. The narrative now switches from the one patriarch to 12, specifically to Joseph, the dreamer. Joseph is known for his dreams. 
And my, my main idea today, my thesis, the thing I want us to know is this, that to have a triumphant faith, triumphant faith, our dreams to know God need to be greater than our dreams for ourselves. To have a triumphal faith, our dreams to know God need to be greater than our dreams for ourselves. I've preached on this before. I'm, I'm really kind of excited this week because God has taught me something in this that I, I didn't know before, obviously using other people in the plain reading of the scripture. God's actually revealed in me this last week ways I was reading my own thoughts into this portion of the scripture. There's a couple Latin words we use when it comes to understanding the scripture. Eisegesis and exegesis. Exegesis means to draw out of. I had a whole, I had a whole teaching series on drawing out of the scriptures. It's exegesis. Eisegesis is where we read into the scriptures. And as I was going through this this week and I heard somebody preach on it, I realized I've been reading into this this entire time. I didn't even realize it. Once I get to that part, I hope that, that shows up, that shows up in you. You know what happens when we read our own thoughts into the scripture? We miss what the scripture wants to do for us. God's word wants to do for us. For all scripture is God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, um, exhortation, and training in righteousness. So there's going to be, man, I, 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 for me personally, and I believe for you is going to be a very hard hitting point today about our dreams needing to bow down to God's dream, to our dream of knowing God. So whenever we talk about Joseph, or you, even if you're just retelling the story, you may, I have to mention the dreams that he has and the dreams that Pharaoh has. I remember last time I preached on this, trying to correlate uh, the dreams that God gave Joseph and the dreams he gave Pharaoh to our hopes and dreams today. So let me just talk about three uses of the word dream that, that, are, that we would use here. We have natural dreams. This is what we have when we are unconscious at night, you know, the rapid eye movement, and we have those dreams that come up. And it, they could be, you know, trying to build a go-kart with your former landlord or whatever is happening, but they're just natural dreams. Now, whether or not they have any significance has been debated over the years by psychologists, but let's just say right here, these are not dreams that God actually gives you like he, would get, like he gave Joseph, like he gave, gives Pharaoh. We have then supernatural or divine dreams. These are the dreams of Joseph. These are the dreams of Pharaoh. God literally giving these dreams to his people. God may give someone a dream today, but it's not on the same level as the dreams we're talking about right now. The dreams he would give today, the dreams he gave to Joseph and to Pharaoh, they were scripture because we have them in our scripture today. In the book of Acts, Peter says that old men will dream dreams. However, we have no we have very little records of that. In fact, the dreams that we would have in the rest of the New Testament um, are, are, very, are very few. And sometimes the person will even say, I don't know if it was sleeping or awake. A waking dream would be a vision. A sleeping dream would be that of a dream that we would be talking about. Having a vivid dream does not necessarily mean that it was of the Lord. We will confuse often our natural dreams with supernatural dreams. Um, True dreams that God would give today, they don't contradict the scripture and they don't add or take away from the scripture. Dreams that God would give today, supernatural dreams, they'd be ones that would cause us to love Jesus more. Some people will confuse their natural dreams for supernatural and dreams, believe that they are prophetic. But I want you to know this, that the devil uses people's dreams as well. In Jude chapter one, verse eight, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh 
reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. I've been a pastor for a number of years. I know this will come up more and more, but somebody will have a dream and they will say it's from God and it will be telling them to do something that God says is sin. And I'll tell them that wasn't God. They're like, no, no, I didn't ask for this dream. God's given me this dream. No, he hasn't. You're trying to superimpose your dream onto the scriptures themselves. And that's why it's good to share these things with each other because hopefully somebody who's godly in your life will acknowledge that for you. And a lot of times, in fact, I'll be honest, most of the time when somebody wants to tell me their prophetic dream, often, and it's, it's hard for me to say this because I want to be gentle and I don't want to hurt the person's feelings, but oftentimes what I hear is somebody who is awfully anxious, who has an anxiety dream, and they want to then see that as something prophetic. We have to watch that. That's why you go to each other and we see if it's something that's trying to add or take away or if it is something that somebody can gently tell us. No, that's just an anxiety dream. I can't tell you how many people have told me dreams with specific dates of armies invading America and the date comes and goes. Okay, that wasn't from God. That was your own anxiety feeding into your subconscious. Godly dreams, they're they're going to be ones that encourage you in the faith. They're not going to be ones that tell you something different than what the Bible tells you. The third type of dream, this one is really not founded in scripture, but it's our use of the word dream today. And I don't know how long this has been going on, but we talk about our hopes and dreams. We're talking about our desires, what we hope for ourselves. You know, you go on American Idol, all these people have their dreams of stardom and fame and things like that. And we all all have these dreams that we have, these aspirations, these desires we want for the future. But what happens when God's intentions towards us, which are for our good, conflict? with the dreams we have for ourselves. Oftentimes we get angry and we tell God that he isn't fulfilling his part of the bargain. I say from experience. I'm not saying, oh, you sinners, this is what you do. From experience, this has happened in my life. That I had dreams for myself or even, and sometimes they're even tied to God's purpose in my life, but I then embellish them and take that as a promise from God when it never was. Let me explain what I'm talking about. So I I graduated college in 2007. Me and my wife graduated college. If you remember, 2008 was a bit of a rough time in America. It was the Great Recession. And in fact, many people actually see it as a, as a depression, not just, but not a Great Depression. And uh, so I graduated in college. A lot of us graduated in college 2007. 2008, there's no jobs. And I am, I am working at Target. I'm, God had called me into ministry. It was years before I actually went into ministry. And I've shared this, this testimony before. Becca's finishing up her graduate degree. I'm at this museum house and it was this time of year. So this museum house had all these gorgeous trees. You know what I hate almost more than anything else? Raking stupid leaves. To this day, I won't rake leaves. I'll just get the lawnmower out and I'll mulch mulch that stuff up, hoping that that's going to help this next spring. But I didn't get that choice because the people who own the museum house, they wanted the leaves raked, not mulched up. So I'm raking these leaves one night. It's like dark out. It's eight o'clock and I'm having my time with God. I'm having, let me rephrase that. I'm having a pity party that I want God to listen to. I don't know if you've ever had that, but yes, I was having a pity party and I was complaining and I'm telling God, this was not the plan. This is not what you've called me to. I hate all these leaves. And, um, and the Lord spoke to my heart and I've shared this before. The Lord really spoke to my heart that if I'm doing what he's asked me to do, I'm, I couldn't be in a better place. That I'm as useful to the kingdom of God raking leaves than I would be preaching to thousands. Because he's the one who gets to decide what a good and faithful servant is. 
not our ideas. You know, you know, this is the thing that really, I think, really fed into that because I would go to camp, I would go to college, I would go to certain services and they would tell us, dream big, dream great dreams and whatever your expectations are, multiply that. And we all did this. And then we graduate from college and we're all like, okay, I'm working at the 7-Eleven. I got $80,000 in school debt. Was I wrong or was God wrong? And we were never told, do you know what God's dream for you is? To know him. And this is so much greater than the dreams you have for yourself. Last week, I had mentioned Bruce Willis and I actually didn't complete the thought and I'd like to complete it today. Um, I, I, I quote, I read that article from the Village Voice about uh, Bruce Willis, Sylvester Stallone and Barbara Streisand, that the day they got everything they ever wanted, they became un- insufferable. Like you couldn't work with them anymore because they got everything they want and it wasn't enough. They were still them when they woke up. So I had thought about this, specifically Bruce Willis, because Bruce Willis has early onset dementia. And it's so much worse than anybody had thought until this last week because one of his friends had posted a video of him and he had said that he's not entirely, he can't communicate entirely already. And I saw this video and it kind of, it kind of broke my heart because if you had a loved one who has dementia, you know the look. And I saw that look on his face. And I remember thinking, what does all of his money, all of his fame, all of the things he strived for, what does it matter right now? And he's alienated, estranged from so many wives and children. And, but if you knew the Lord, because I've known saints who have dementia, who forget their children's names, who, know, who forget their spouse's name. In fact, I remember this story of this woman. She could barely talk at all. And, and her, her loved ones are sitting around her. She was, she was probably months away from passing away. She could barely speak. She had dementia. And they could hear her say, bring, bring bring. They're like, what do you want us to bring? What do you want us to bring? And then she's like, she, she was able to get out, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Dreams. The third type of dream. So often our dreams for ourselves will eclipse God's dream for us and it's to our detriment, just like it was for Joseph's 12 brothers. We know the rest of the story. And if you don't, I'm going to spoil it for you. They sell him into slavery and they hold that guilt for their entire life. And when they think their, their youngest, youngest brother is about to be taken, they're ready to sell their own lives because they have this guilt from that time. See, there's a, when we try to sacrifice God's dreams for us on the altar of our own dreams, we'll only get destruction and misery for ourselves. It will not stop God's plan, but it will make us miserable. Speaking of miserable, I'm on this uh, musical kick right now. In fact, uh, last night I was thinking about watching Fiddler on the Roof, another awesome musical. So when I'm running, I'll be listening to musicals. And one of my favorite one is Les Miserables, The Miserable Ones. Um, it's awesome though. It's, it's, really, it's really great that, uh, um, and it ends in death, but it's really a cheery death. But anyway, um, and I'm not going to go. I was telling myself, don't go over the plot. You don't need to go over the plot today. And I'm not going to. There's a dream for, there's a, there's a, there's a song from that musical that you may have heard, even if you've never seen the musical, and that's I Dreamed a Dream. You may have heard this when, uh, that Scottish gal was on American or British Idol, and she, uh, it was one of those big surprise moments you think it's going to be, this is going to be a train wreck, but she does an awesome job. And the song stands on its own without having to know the plot. And really the last verse says it all. She, she sings, I had a dream my life would be so much different from this hell I'm living, so different from what it seems 
Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Without God, how can the song be any different? When I saw that video of Bruce Willis, I thought, even though he has so much, he could sing this song. When you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who was the most famous, the most rich, because his obedience was not supposed to be where it is, it's all vanity. It's all useless unless you do it for the Lord. We have so many examples of like King Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, who had all this, all this stuff and he looks outside at his kingdom. What a kingdom I have. And God strikes him with insanity and he goes around for seven years eating grass. He could have sang that song, but Joseph doesn't sing this song. Not when he is in a dungeon, not when he is in slavery, not when he is governor over all of Egypt because his desire was God. And how do we know this? Because when it came time for somebody to tempt him and to risk his, the life he was building for himself, he says, how can I sin against my master and against my God? If our dreams are about our happiness, then unless, then unless this life conforms to what we think happiness is, we'll say life has killed the dream I dreamed. Joseph was actually given two dreams by God. And I could imagine him singing this song in a prison cell, however, that's not what's in the text. As I was studying this chapter this week, I find myself doing that a lot in this account of reading my own thoughts, my own history into this text. But when I take that away, I see, I see the conviction power of the Holy Spirit in this text. I wonder if we do this because we, like Joseph's brothers, are uncomfortable with greatness that God gives other people. Maybe we're like Joseph's brothers and we too are jealous and envious. We can't abide great people in our midst. We'll find some way of tearing them down. No, they're really not like this and trying to lift ourselves up. Joseph's brothers had dreams of their own. Once again, I'm using our term of dreams. I looked up dreams in the Bible. I didn't see any use of the dream the way we talk about dreams. But if we were to talk about this, to understand they had dreams of their own, even though we don't know what those specifically are, they're the dreams so many people have of a life that is worthwhile, a life of consequence, of comfort, and of being acknowledged. We often apply to Joseph, um, we often apply certain things to jo certain things that maybe we, th we think is sin to Joseph, but what of, what of Joseph's brothers? They have these dreams and their reaction to Joseph's dream that he got from God is because they are so, it's so extreme because they believe that it threatens their dreams. Joseph's remarkable life. David Gusick, when remarking about Joseph's remarkable life um, and his unique life, puts it in this context, the context of other men of faith that we found in Genesis already. Enoch, Enoch shows the walk of faith. Noah shows the perseverance of faith. Abraham shows the obedience of faith. Isaac shows the power of faith. Jacob shows the discipline of faith. Along these lines, we could say Joseph shows the triumph of faith. Joseph never complains and he never compromises. James Montgomery Boyce said, He was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased. Yet at no point in his 110 years of life did Joseph ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not, did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was truly a great man. 
So as we dive in just these 11 verses here, we get introduced or reintroduced, I should say, to the dreamer. And then the next section we see his first dream and the third section of just these first 11 verses, we see the second dream. Let's go dive right into this, the dreamer. In verse one, verse one, I, I ended my sermon last week with verse one. I'm starting it with this, this week. Joseph lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Jacob, uh, sorry, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob's brother Esau, the one whom the scripture says is hated, he is conquering and he is taking possession of an entire land. However, Joseph is sojourning. It's, that means to be a stranger in a strange land. You're only here for a moment in time and then moving on. Joseph only owns a very small portion of this land as well, as his grandfather did and as his father did. He's a stranger in a strange land, owns very little, but has vastly more than Esau. In time, from, uh, in time specifically in Obadiah chapter 1, God judges Esau's people. They'll be completely lost. Sometimes we're envying people, and if we had their life, we would realize how blessed our life really is. See, Jacob could envy Esau, but in time, there is no people, there's no Edomites to this day. They go into the exile, they don't come out of the exile. See, I think one of the most powerful statements of the sovereignty of God is the endurance of the Jewish people. Because there's no Philistines, there's no Amalekites, there's no Edomites, there's no all kinds of ites, but there's still a Jewish people to this day. And even just the memory that God had chosen them over all families of the earth is enough for people to hate them and to continually hate them from generation to generation. But God preserves his people. He preserves his people, Israel, and we are grafted into that. Those promises are for us as well. In verse two, we see the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. Rarely in the scripture do we get such a clear transition from one people to a next or one person to a next or one thought to a next. But this one is very clear. These are the generations of Jacob. That is, that is to mean that we're no longer talking about Jacob who is, who is affecting events, but Jacob is now handing off the baton to the next generation, his 12 sons. The Bible, once again, isn't always crystal clear with transitions, but this time it is clear that we are departing from Jacob as the active participant um, and moving on to his sons. His sons will be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob goes, <laughs> there we go. um, Jacob goes by three names in these, in these uh, 11 verses. Jacob being his birth name, Jacob means heel grabber. That's him as a natural man. Two, Israel. Israel means he who contends with God or that God conquers. And Israel is the head of the tribes of Israel. And he is an heir according to the promise. And the third thing he is called is father. But from this point on, it will be his sons who will, who will make events go forward. In verse two, we already have family drama. After we get after, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. This is like our reintroduction to this young man. Because first we hear about his birth. We hear how his father tried to protect him from Esau. But now we see him as a young man. Now, I'll be honest, like most of the time when I read this, I read 17 years old, but in my mind, I still see like a 10-year-old. I don't know if anybody else does this. Maybe you don't do this, good for you. But because of family history, I think I kind of see him as a much, much younger brother, not as an actual man. But the scripture says he is a young man. He is young, but he is a man. And he's pastoring the flock with his brothers. He, um, he was... Uh, uh, with his brothers, 
Uh, he was with uh, the bo- uh, boys, the sons of Bilhah and Z- uh, Zilpan, with his, fa- the, uh, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Um, let me read that again. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy and a boy with the son of Bilhah and Zilpan, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. This is what I mean by reading our own family history into the scripture, is that when we read this, we think of what it was like to grow up with a younger brother or sister who's a tattletale. And this is how I think I've even preached this. It's not the reality of the text. See, yeah, that's how I read into it, that he was just being a little tattletale along with his brothers. And, uh, and that was, that, a lot of times we try to infer sin on Jacob into these first 11 verses, but I'm telling you, the scripture does not infer sin on Joseph. Sorry, Joseph, Joseph again. Uh, man, why, why couldn't he have a different first letter of that name? Anyway, Joseph in this. So we see him as this little tattletale, but he's 17 years old. And with the further context I'm going to explain to you, he is not, he is not just, um, he's not just some little kid tattling on his brothers. He is there because that's his job to report on them. And if they didn't like it, they should have done a good job. I remember when I was working in Target, once again, it was another job I had in Wheaton, not my favorite job in the world. And if my little sister Brittany is watching this today, you're going to get a kick out of this story. So, Back in that time, the, Target has a position called AP, Asset Protection. And we used to call them Target Cops because they would wear cop uniforms with a badge that had a Target symbol in the middle. And this, uh, this guy, he just got promoted. His name was Jason as well. He was the least liked person in that store because he took his job extremely seriously. And what I mean by that is that he found, because he got a bonus every time he could catch a team member doing something wrong, that team member got fired, but he got a bonus. And he was passionate. I mean, he was working hard to get this job. And I remember people, man, they hated that guy's guts. But you know something at the end of the day, if you're doing something wrong, if you're stealing from the store, you deserve to get fired. It's not his fault, it's your fault. I remember, yeah, once again, I remember he even got like people who were like higher up doing things they weren't supposed to do that they'd been doing for years. And yeah, people really didn't like him. But I remember thinking, it's like, hey, it's your own fault. Maybe you shouldn't try to steal stuffing, stuff from the store. I mean, I remember when, you know, to, to transition from that to maybe a, a time in my own life, I wasn't doing something very, very good. I was working in college with uh, three other people. And um, we decided we didn't want to work that day. So we uh, picked up our phones and we dialed every area code we knew with a certain number that you'd find in an 80s song and asking for Jenny. And uh, I remember thinking, if our supervisor came in, we'd be in a lot of trouble and we'd deserve it because we weren't getting paid to, to call the area code numbers asking for Jenny. And I, I've already said too much and teenagers do not do that. You'll get in trouble and you deserve to get in trouble if you do. We read this and we think of Tattletale. No, this was his job. Already in verse two, we have family drama. Have you ever had family drama? Do you currently have family drama? I am thinking of a crowd this size. The answer is absolutely yes. Here's a reminder. Jacob has 12 sons, one daughter, four baby mamas. If this was in the 90s, they'd be on the Jerry Springer show throwing chairs. And this, no, okay, you think you have a dysfunctional family? I want you, and you think God can't use you? This is the family God uses to reveal himself to the world. The family who the Messiah of the whole earth comes from. 
And here we have the introduction again of Joseph. He is shepherding his father's flock and he brings a bad report. It's not what it appears. He's not a tattletale. He is doing what is expected of him while his brothers are not doing what is respected, expected of them. They hate him because he's uncompromising. They also hate him because of favoritism. Most of his relationship between Joseph and his brothers is not because of Joseph and his brothers. It's Joseph's brother's relationship with their father. Because they have issues with their father, they have issues with Jacob. As we read, continue to read in, in uh, verse 3 here. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. The technicolor dream coat. Let me back up here. Joseph never had a good, Jacob, sorry, Jacob always had issues with those interpersonal relationships. A big reason he had issues with interpersonal relationships, he had favorites and he made sure everybody knew who his favorites were. This is bad. You don't want to emulate this in your life. You don't want to do this in your life where you can expect what Jacob gets. He, we know that he works 14 years. He doesn't work 14 years for Bilhah or for Zilpah. He doesn't work 14 years for Leah. He works 14 years for Rachel. And when Rachel dies, he builds a monument to her. And that was a nice subtle thing to let everybody know that's the only wife I really love. And then her children become his automatic favorites because they were her, her children. And he makes sure they know they're his favorites. I'm always learning when it comes to the scripture. For instance, the word that's translated here is multicolored, um, that gets translated as multicolored or ornate or technicolor dream coat. It's a very difficult word to translate. And as nearest as anybody can tell, it has nothing to do with its color, but it's just a robe of distinction. According to James Montgomery Boyce, the uh, real idea behind the ancient Hebrew phase for this tunic of many colors is not so much its color, but its length is that it's a long tunic, a long robe, that it goes all the way down to the wrist and to the ankles. Most people's tunics, they came right here. They came right here. So you could work in the field. That's a working man's tunic. Joseph, his goes all the way to the wrist. His goes all the way to the ankles because Joseph is not expected to work. He's expected to supervise. He's that guy on the side of the road while everybody else is doing the hard work, digging the ditch, who's like eating the Snickers bar and telling him, good job, boys. Um, that's his role. And it's his role given to him by his father. His father gave him that. Now, why would the second to youngest son be given such a higher role? And this goes into the envy of his brothers. It's all Reuben's fault. And I don't mean Reuben, but Reuben, his brother, oldest brother. His oldest brother disqualifies himself by taking his father's concubine for himself, Bilhah. And I, I learned a lot of interesting things this week about this. First of all, in the Canaanite tradition, um, the Mesopotamian tradition, so the whole area, um, you could even find this in the Code of Hammurabi when it talks about ascension rites. If the oldest son disqualifies himself, like you can't just decide to disqualify him, but if he disqualifies himself, then the father is free to choose whoever he wants to be his heir. In the middle of the pack, end of the pack, he can decide whatever he wants. That's one. Two, family history. Jacob, he was not the oldest son. He was the second. And he had heard the prophecy that the older would serve the younger. So he, by hook and by crook, makes sure it's that way. So when his brothers see him in the technicolor dream code in the long robe, they know father has a plan here. 
and they hate him all the more because of it. But whose fault is that? It's their own. So they hate Joseph. They don't hate Joseph so much about Joseph, but really more about their father. And this coat right here signifies his place of being exalted over them. This was, once again, this, this coat, it was not that of a workman. It was a garment of privilege and status. This man who wore a tunic of many colors watched others as they did the hard physical labor. Like I've said before, that's what Joseph's job was, according to his dad, to report on his brothers. Now, the question is, why would the second youngest, and I told you about Reuben there, and how Jacob can choose anybody to be his heir at this point, And in verse four, we have, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Hate and envy. Envy quickly turns hate in families. It's not their imagination either. Joseph's dad did favor him above the others. He gave him a robe to prove it, but hate, but envy is such a dangerous, jealousy is such a dangerous sin. Keep in mind that his brothers in their time themselves would become wealthy men. They would have families of their own. But right now, this is a problem. Joseph has something they don't. Thomas Aquinas in Summa Theologica says that he, he questions, okay, is, 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 is envy the source of all other sins? And he comes to the conclusion it's not. It's just um, pride being the, the, the originator of other sins. But envy is a, a strong contender because envy is so destructive. He calls envy the sorrow at another's good. And we envy those who are close to us. We envy brothers and sisters. We envy people who succeed in ways that we want to succeed in. I remember when I was in high school, I kind of saw myself a certain way. Um, I was on fire for the Lord. Um, I was pursuing a lot of things. And then there's this guy who came to our, to our school and he had been from a homeschooling background. And let me, let me count the ways that I wanted to be known that he was better than me. He knew more scripture than me. He was more versed in drama and things like that, could sing better than me. And uh, what, what else here? I mean, I don't know. There's a bunch of other ways. He was even growing his hair long. Okay, man, he really crossed the line. And I remember, I mean, like, I was really fighting because I knew this was such, I mean, this is another thing Thomas Aquinas says, is it's the one deadly sin that does not feel good when you're committing it. And it really bothered me. I can't remember this kid's name to this day. I hope he's blessed. And I hope things are going really well for him, especially since I was pretending to be his friend, yet I was, like, furious with him. And uh, it's almost like that scene from Tombstone. It's like, uh, that's Latin, darling. Apparently, Johnny Ringo is an educated man. How I really do hate him. Um, <laughs> It's that one sin, once again, instead of what frees us is to realize that God deals with us on a personal level and that he has given us certain blessings. He's given us a role. We see this, the, older, the younger brother being mistreated by the older brothers when we look at the life of King David. King David, by the time the whole Goliath event's about to happen, he's been anointed as king over Israel. Before he was anointed, the man of God, the prophet, comes to the people, Samuel. He comes to the house and he looks over the older sons until he gets to the younger son, who they weren't even thinking about calling in from watching the sheep. So they're not chosen. He is. It burns within his brothers. So when he goes to go check up on his brothers to make sure they're okay, he brings some food with him. And he starts hearing about this big ox named Goliath who's saying all these terrible things. He starts saying, hey, what will the king do for the guy who gets to kill that, who kills that guy? And his brother takes him aside and 
those of you who have older siblings, maybe you've had that conversation where they're like berating you and they're just, and he says, he says, this is actually, that was my paraphrase. This is the quote. He says, can't I even speak? I'm like, you tore that from every home that's ever existed that had older and younger siblings. Can't I even speak? So when he comes, when he comes to the battle, speaking of David, he asks what, what the king will do for the one who kills that big ox. His brothers are very, have very unkind words for him, just like Joseph's brothers had for him. Hate and murder. Killing your brother cross-culturally. And all the myths and legends of other people. One common thread is the one sin one must never commit is killing your own brother. Makes sense when you consider all people come from one family and from that one family, there's a story of a man killing his younger brother because God favored his offering instead of his own, Cain and Abel. His brothers, this hatred of theirs, this disdain for him, it multiplies. And in this very chapter, they think of killing their very brother. Joseph's brothers hate him. And later in this chapter, they want to murder him. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Can you pull that up for me? But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. In the verse before that, he says, you've heard, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. When he's saying that, he's speaking to Israel, Israelites. And I guarantee you, they're thinking of like Cain and Abel like Esau, who comforted himself with the idea of killing his brother Jacob, like Joseph's brothers, who hate him and are envious of him and intended on murdering him until they, until they came to at least of one sense among them. One sense amongst them. Verses five through eight, we have the dream finally, the first dream. Before we get to that, I want to remind you, Joseph's brothers had their own dreams. Like I said before, the word dream that I'm using right now, it's our use for dream of hopes and dreams of desires and their desires for themselves, for their future, for their hope, for their future. When they hear Joseph's dreams, it makes them intimidated as though his dreams would destroy their dreams. Joseph's brothers had desires in their hearts. We don't know specifically what they are, but if we just take that from the state of every human being, a life that matters, maybe of wealth, maybe of comfort, but the very least of being centered in their own lives, this dream that God gives Joseph, on the other hand, puts them to the outside, puts them around him instead of in the middle. And it might shatter those dreams. So in verse five, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. In these 11 verses, it says they hate their brother three times. In Hebrew literature, instead of having punctuation, like exclamation points, they'll repeat things. You repeat it twice, pay attention. Three times, that's all caps, yelling, several exclamation points. I use exclamation points liberally. They did not. So take note, they really hate him. In the Hebrew literature, that is like putting a bunch of exclamation points after the statement. They hate him because their father's love towards him, but they hate him more because God gives him dreams. And they hate him for his words. In verses six through seven, this is the dream that God gives him. He says to them, hear this dream that I dreamed. Behold, we were, 
We were binding sheaths in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright, and behold, your sheath gathered around and bowed down to my sheath. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Most of the time when we read this, or it gets preached, and I'll be honest, the way I've preached it in the past, we put the blame on Joseph. We would say, at the very least, it was unwise for him to share his dreams. Let's take all our family history out of this and start realizing this. This is God's word to his brothers. If Joseph doesn't say this, God's word isn't being communicated. They hate him for his words. They hate him for his dreams. But what they truly hate is God's word. Now, we know the rest of the story. They didn't. Their ignorance is absolutely understandable, but our continued ignorance needs to maybe stop because what is, their, what is this first dream? It's wheat. How will God save the known world in Joseph's time? Wheat. They don't understand this and they take it personally. We do this all the time, right? Instead of trying to discern things spiritually, we let the natural man take over and we get intimidated, we get angry. We see somebody succeeding the way we want to succeed and we want to rip them down. You know what God is telling them? This is for them. They need this. Because when the time comes and they're bowing down to Joseph, they will not be angry. They will not be hateful. It'll be an incredible gratitude because God has saved them, their little ones. Joseph, so many people have said this, and I'm going to go on this in future sermons. Joseph is so, he's such a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. In Joseph, we see what God's physical salvation looks like. And in Jesus Christ, we see what God's spiritual salvation looks like. You know, if you are a Jew up to the first century and you're reading this story about Joseph and you see, okay, this is what God, this is how God saves the people physically who would die of starvation without him. And this is the person, the 17-year-old kid, the 17-year-old young man. And what God has to bring this guy through before he is able, before God is able to use him to save others you might want to ask the question, what does God have to do to save us spiritually? What does that look like? Because Joseph in the scripture never blatantly talks about any of the sins of Joseph. Now he was a sinner. He wasn't like Jesus Christ pre-incarnate as the son of Jacob. And he was a sinner, but we're not told his sins. So you're wondering if there's such a guy, like I just said, from all this stuff from James Montgomery voice, what would God need to do in order to save a people spiritually? Well, he would have to come down himself because there is nobody who could do it besides him. We all have our sins we have to deal with. What would God have to do? He would have to send somebody who would be rejected by those closest to him, betrayed by those who should love him. He would need to have somebody who truly is, not just in the writings, but truly is in every way, shape, and form, blameless, holy, and righteous. When the time comes, their reaction, is, their reaction was born out of jealousy, but when the time comes, they'll be thankful. So when I researched this chapter, I had the same reaction I think many do. Joseph at best is unwise. If not here, then his second dream, maybe he's even sinning here. He should have just kept it to himself. And that's what I hear so many pastors. In fact, a pastor I really appreciate, a pastor I really respect. I was listening to his message on this. And he said, uh, the second dream, Joseph's sinning here. And I'm like, let me just test that according to the word of God. And he, what he was saying is that 
especially the second dream for Joseph to mention that, he wasn't putting others first and that's why they hate him. He said, that's unlike Jesus Christ who always put others first. Jesus always did put others first, but remember they hated him. They crucified him. When they saw that the crowds were following him instead of them, they looked for an opportunity to put him to death. Was that not him? Was that him not centering others? Not at all. Natural man, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This point in time in their life, they are not, they are following the natural man, not the spirit. And this is spiritually discerned. Furthermore, if we are talking about sin in this chapter, we can look at, we can look at intentions and see how they play themselves out in actions. If Joseph was sinning here, how come he doesn't try, if, it, if his sin was ambition, if his sin was pride, how come we don't see that in his actual actions? See, his father, Jacob, had a prophecy from God and he had sin in his heart because it, it translated through deceiving his father, his father Isaac, by pretending he was Esau. These men, they see what is happening here, the jealousy in their heart. And what does that lead them to want to do? To kill him. And in James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Who wanted to kill who here? Whose actions led to them wanting to kill the other? Whose actions lured them away by their own desires and left utter regret? So now let's go to the second dream, verses 9 through 11. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the same in mind. Second verse, same as the first. He gets two dreams. Remember when he's going before Pharaoh and Pharaoh has two dreams and he tells Pharaoh his dreams are one. This is where he's learning that. This is where he's learning that because of the experience that God has given in his life. And oftentimes as we disciple others, as we are encouraging others in the faith, we can share what God has done in our lives. This is what God is doing in his life. His dreams are one in the same of his brothers, of his father bowing down to him. And this happens, this does happen. God does bring this to pass. So what we, what we can learn from this is we have to skip forward in the narrative to when he is telling Pharaoh, that his dreams are one and the same. And that means it will happen. It will absolutely happen. Nothing will stop this from happening. And two, it will happen quickly. Now you might look at those years in between that. Is that very quickly? It is quickly. God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Second, we see this dream again. The second dream, we see this again in the scripture. If we go to Revelation chapter 12, there is the great woman who gives birth to the child whom the dragon wants to eat. Her crown is of 12 stars. This, this vision that John has can be easily discerned as the Messiah coming from Israel. In verse 10, Jacob's initial reaction. 
Jacob, once again, we want to point out that he is, uh, that he is having, you know, he's, he understands he's Israel. He's sometimes revert to Jacob. So when he first hears it, his initial reaction is outrage. Even Jacob doesn't like the stream because he doesn't understand. In the next verse, that gets downgraded to just keep it in mind. When someone tells me they're quote unquote prophetic words, this is what I do as well. I just keep it in mind. I judge it by the word of God. I judge whether or not this makes me love Jesus more and the things I say, and then I keep it in mind. And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, I know this person's a false prophet. And then I just don't talk to them anymore. I don't associate with them. I don't hold them up to any kind of a standard because there's somebody who will say their thoughts and intentions, or they'll be inspired by Satan himself and say, it's the word of God. I just keep them, keep it in mind very much like the way Joseph, Jacob does here. But in verse 11, we see his, je- his brother's jealousy. Once again, we see the brother's jealousy. They want him dead. That's crazy. He is their brother. Yes, he is their brother. But you know what also? He is God's means of salvation for them. Them. If, jo- if they were really allowed, if God really allowed them to kill their brother, that's it. That's the end of the story. The book's done, folks. Because they die in the desert. Because God already decided in his sovereignty, the famine was coming and his sovereignty provided a savior. If they actually did kill him, that that would be the end of their story too. But God in his sovereignty does not allow this. Once again, we see the brother's jealousy and they would destroy God's very means of salvation for them. But we see this parallel in the life of Jesus. For the Pharisees to want Jesus dead, that's their only means of salvation. They're not righteous enough in and of themselves. They try to keep the law, but they break the law. And if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken all of the law. They don't realize how their desperate need for their savior out of jealousy, they want to kill their only means of salvation. That's how ridiculous jealousy is. What would it mean Yet, yet he would be the salvation, yet he would be the salvation that God would use. And this is all a part of God's plan. From Psalm chapter 105, verses 17 through 25. I don't remember back there. Did I give you that one or did I uh, omit that? If I did, you can put it up. If not, I apologize for mentioning it when I didn't give you that verse to put up. Please bear with me as I uh, turn my own Bible towards it. I'm so close. My man hands don't uh, turn the pages as fast as I would like. All right, I'm there now. Um, Psalm chapter 105, verses 17 through 25. He sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he, what he had said come to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The rulers of the people set him free. He made him Lord of his house, the ruler of all of his possessions. They mean this for evil, but God intends it for the good. That's what Jacob said. That's what Joseph says towards the end of of this book, of this end of the book of the beginnings. When his brothers don't believe the forgiveness is really real. That maybe Joseph, like Uncle Esau, is just waiting for dad to die. And then he's going to show us. 
And they, they forge a letter from their dad saying, don't give him a hard time after I die. And Joseph sees right through it. And he weeps and he tells them, what you meant for evil, God meant it for the good of what is being done. I said this last week, you know what the, the worst day in human history that revealed humanity for what we truly are is the crucifixion. You know what the greatest day in human history that produced salvation for all who would believe? The crucifixion. In Psalm 105, verses 17 through 25, Joseph's brothers thought they were sending him ahead, but it was God who sent him ahead. And that God would use these events in Joseph's life to make him, to make him able to do what he needs to do. And above all things, his desire for God outweighed his desire for himself. Because never once does Joseph try to manipulate events to put himself on top. He trusts God has that taken care of. But we are filled with so much anxiety and we try to shape events towards what we think they are. And we are so worried about our dreams, but our dreams need to die in conjunction for God's dreams for us. Who decides who's the good and faithful servant? It is the master who decides who is the good and faithful servant. Our dreams need to bow down to God's dreams. That's where Joseph's brothers had the hardest time because that's what that really means. It's not about Joseph. They have to bow down before the sovereignty of God in their life without understanding, without knowing, but to trust and to move on. They do eventually do that when this prophecy is fulfilled, but not yet. And next week, we'll talk about them lowering him into a pit, about the slavery and the trials of Joseph. But for this week, let us search our hearts. Worship team, can you come up at this time? Let us search our hearts. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to search our heart for roots of bitterness that we've been holding onto. This is what I found when I, when I divorced myself of my preconceived ideas and I read this scripture for what it is, I realized that there are things in my own hearts, roots of bitterness that God wants to rip out of my own life. Ask the Holy Spirit to do same for your, in your life. Maybe it's envy, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's just past hurts that you're holding on to and you need to forgive. But in all things, surrender your dreams to his dream. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? This is our moment to reflect on the scripture, to allow the Holy Spirit to search us, to find any unclean thing, and then to offer it to him as worship. Because worship, true worship, is a living sacrifice.